Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and privilege to open God's word with you this morning. Let's pray as we do so. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, open our hearts, that we might hear the good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would open our lives to you, that you might call us to heartfelt obedience and allegiance to Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I find it interesting that one of the first things that, um, that John tells us about Thomas in this story is that he had a nickname. And uh, what was Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas. What, what, what did you think it was? The twin, right? The twin. Uh, I don't know if you knew that before you came in here and saw that passage, uh, but we know other nicknames in the Bible, so it seems like Jesus and his disciples had a good relationship. They called each other different names, pet names, we might say. Uh, James and John uh, were brothers, and they were known as the Sons of Thunder. Like, that's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty legit nickname, Sons of Thunder. Uh, Simon, of course, Peter, the Rock. I mean, that still holds up pretty well. Sons of Thunder, The Rock, and then Thomas is the twin. Eh, I don't know. I don't know if that's as catchy. We actually don't know why he's called that. Maybe he actually had a twin, uh, or maybe he just looked like one of the other disciples, but Thomas was the twin. And what I love about that is it reminds us right away when we open up the Bible, we're not talking about an alternate universe. We're not talking about fake people. We're not talking about fictional people. We're talking about real people because you have nicknames. I'm not going to ask what your nickname is, but you have nicknames because people you love call you by your nickname. And here Thomas has a nickname. This is a story about real people. But of course, I was trying to trick you, and you didn't fall for it. Doubting Thomas is the nickname we all have for Thomas. Poor guy, 2,000 years go by, and he cannot get over this episode of doubt. 2,000 years. You would think by now we would read the end of the story in which he's not doubting anymore, but no, the reason we call him Doubting Thomas and anyone else who doubts us about anything, Doubting Thomas is because this is a story in which Thomas makes a name for himself, not because he has a twin, but because he has doubts about whether or not he can really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he actually lays out the conditions of his doubt. He does us that benefit. He tells us in verse 25 that unless he actually puts his hands on Jesus's body where the nails went into his body and the spear went into his side, Thomas will never believe. Now, to appreciate, and, and here I do think we have to give Thomas some credit, he has held up and, and held on to this skepticism for a full week. All right, we're told earlier in this passage that, uh, that this is happening a week after the first Easter. So the first Easter, Jesus rises from the dead, he appears to the disciples that evening, and when he comes into the room, he shows them his his resurrected body with the marks of the cross still on it. And they believe that they have not just seen a vision or it's not like a mass hallucination, it's not a figment of their imagination. They believe they have seen 
Jesus. The same person who went into the grave dead three days later is alive. They believe they've seen the Lord. In fact, John tells us in this passage that they have applied the full court press on Thomas for a week. We're telling you, Thomas, twin, whatever, we, whatever you want us to call you, uh, we have seen the Lord. We've seen him. And Thomas says, that's fine, good for you, I'm glad that's working for you, but I'm not going to believe that until I actually see him and touch him myself. You see, this is a story, the Easter story is a story about real people with nicknames and all and with doubts and questions and all. Real people, just like you and me. Uh, one of my favorite artistic interpretations of this scene is uh, the painting by Caravaggio, 17th century Italian painter. Uh, he paints this painting of Thomas encountering Jesus for the first time. And one of the reasons I love it, and one of the reasons I love a lot of the art that he does, is it's shot through with realism. So he's creating art at a time when a lot of religious art idealized biblical characters. So a biblical scene like this would have everybody with you know, glowing faces and angelic smiles and halos on their head and all of that. But, but uh, uh, Caravaggio was like, nonsense. That's actually, actually not what was happening. These are real people who are dealing with real questions. And so he would invite peasants and uh, ordinary people in to be his models. And so even in this painting, the faces feel like real people, real faces of, of real people, you know, people like us. Not that you're peasants, but you know, that's the, but, but, but you get the idea. And not only that, but the way that he would do the lighting for the painting, there's a word for that, but I'm sure some, somebody will tell me afterwards. The lighting in the painting is such that everything's not illuminated. It's like, it's got this spotlight effect. Have you seen this painting? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like pitch black behind, but, but the actors and the movement even in the painting is spotlit. It is realism shot through. And it reminds us that, that when we open up the Bible, we're not just interacting with a story about real people in real history. In this particular story, we are actually encountering Jesus bringing real hope to real people. Real hope to real people. Now, um, some of you may be thinking, even as I say that, well, how can that still be true? I mean, we're, what, 2,000 years removed from this incident? We're 2,000 years removed, and, you know, humanity has gone through a lot in 2,000 years, and here we are in our own time and space, and the pastor is asking me to really believe that the resurrection of Jesus still brings real hope to my life right now where we sit in this room or in the fellowship hall or wherever we're watching this service. Can it possibly be true that the resurrection of Jesus still brings real hope to real people? Well, to answer that question, let's just explore a little bit. First of all, the real people in this passage because I think we have a lot in common with them. First of all, some of us may have a lot in common with Thomas, the poster boy for skepticism. The one who says, I will never believe unless I actually put my hand on Jesus' wounds. And just to be technical about it, just to get a preposition straight so that we're at least grossed out a little bit this morning, he actually says, put my hands where? In, in the wounds. He wants to get up close and personal. 
because he's got doubts. He doesn't know if a, if a reasonable, sane person can believe that someone who was dead three days later can rise from the grave. And some of us are coming from precisely that place this morning. Even those of us who are Christians, we, we wrestle with questions and doubts about whether these things can be true, whether our faith is really anchored in something that's real. Uh, that's one facet of what it means to be a real person. Uh, but that's really not the biggest issue going on in this passage. Yes, one of them is skeptical. Yes, they're trying to convince him that they believe uh, that what they believe is true about Jesus. But actually, it's not just the skepticism that characterizes this moment, it's the anxiety. Uh, notice in both episodes, both the first Easter and this episode a week later, in both episodes, the disciples make sure the door is locked. You know, it's interesting. We, we often think of the disciples, maybe anyway, as, you know, as at least at this point, a week removed from the resurrection, having gotten all, over all that. Like, why, what reason do they have to be anxious? What reason do they have to be fearful even a week later? Well, it seems that they're still concerned, worried, fearful, anxious, about the same thing they were fearful about a week before, and that is that the same enemies of Jesus who arrested him, tortured him, and crucified him are now coming after them. It's really important for us to get this, to get that um, Jesus walks into a room of real people, one of whom, at least, is skeptical, all of whom are anxious. That is to say, Easter is for a room full of people like this. People who are skeptical, people who are anxious, people like us, people who feel like the world out there is dangerous and that the future is uncertain. See, we, we often assume that Easter is only meaningful for you know, people who kind of have everything figured out when it comes to God and Jesus and sin and heaven and hell and all of that. Like, you know, it's for religious people. Or, on the other hand, we think Easter is really only meaningful for, you know, people who don't have anything figured out, like people who are at the rock bottom of life, you know, needy people. And, uh, and then sometimes it's hard to really put ourselves in either one of those categories. We don't feel like we're a terribly religious person. We, don't, we certainly don't have it all figured out. We don't, we don't really feel like we're a needy person either. I mean, if we're honest, like, life's pretty good. We like our job enough. Uh, we love our family, we love our friends, uh, we count our blessings, uh, we're not in serious financial trouble, uh, the future looks, you know, positive as far as we can tell. And so we find ourselves asking the question as we read a passage like this, what does Easter have to offer us that nothing else can? What does Easter give us that, that nothing else can? Well, maybe one way we can answer that question is just to notice a detail that we have in both the first Easter story that we have in the beginning of the passage and even in the second one. What's the first thing Jesus says when he walks into the room? Peace be with you. Why does he say that? Well, here's a hint. Because the last time they saw Jesus, he was dead. And statistically anyway, dead people tend to 
stay dead. And so for Jesus all of a sudden to be standing in front of them, you know, not a zombie, you know, not a walking corpse, not sort of limping into the room, uh, not a figment of their imagination or a ghost or a vision, but Jesus alive and well with the marks of the cross on his body, for him to stand there in front of them was, let's just say like deeply troubling. And so he has to calm them down. Why? Because they had really come to the threshold of where their earthly hope ends, and that is death. And here is someone who has defied even and crossed over even that threshold. He was bringing to them, to these real people, people like you and me, what we might call real hope. Hope that stands up even in the face of death. So here we are talking about death on Easter. I'm really sorry, my apologies. Um, but the fact of the matter is we can't really talk about what real hope is unless we really come to terms with the fact that all of us find ourselves in the same situation, and that is in the face of death, we are utterly helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves. Now, we, we don't often get to that conclusion very often because the fact of the matter is we don't really talk about death very often. And when we do talk about it, we sort of talk about it in a way that distracts us from the reality and the grim reality of it. I'm a pastor, and so part of what I have the, the privilege of doing, and it really is a privilege, is to walk with families or walk with individuals who are, who are wrestling with grief and in some cases planning a funeral and in some places uh, sometimes officiating a funeral or graveside service. And so I get to observe just how different people handle death in their lives. Not their own death, uh, necessarily, in some cases, yes, but also those around them. And so I was struck by this article I read not too long ago that was just looking at the general trends in the funeral business. I know this is something you're entirely familiar with. Uh, just, you know, bear with me for a second. Um, humor me for a moment. But, but in this article, uh, the opening statement went like this. Somber, embalmed body funerals with their $10,000 industry average price tag are out those are out, and personalized end-of-life ceremonies are in. More backyard potluck memorials, less grave graveside services. More Sinatra and Clapton, less Ave Maria. More Hawaiian shirts, fewer darker suits. Families want to put the fun back in funerals. Now, that's fine and all that, and I'm certainly not the, the police on this or, or going to criticize anybody for having an end-of-life uh, celebration. There are certainly places for that. But I wonder, I wonder if behind that trend there is a cultural trend, really a human instinct, to distract ourselves from the finality and the grim reality of death. And so, if that's true, if we're picking up on something that's true not just about people out there, but even, you know, even people in here, people in here, um, then I think it's also true to say that Easter really is for needy people. It just turns out we're all needy people. When you really get down to it, we're all very needy. We have a need for some, for some hope when it comes to the difficult things in life. And my question for you this morning is simply, where do you find that hope? 
What's, what's real hope? What's real hope look like? Well, Jesus gives us a model for what that looks like, and in this passage, he's presenting to Thomas persuasive evidence. I think it's really, really interesting that um, Jesus actually repeats more or less or echoes uh, Thomas's request when he sees Thomas. So Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I do X, Y, Z. And so Jesus sees Thomas and says, then go ahead and do X, Y, Z. He, he says to him, uh, he says to Thomas, verse 27, to Thomas, put your finger here. You said you wanted to do it. Go ahead and do it. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it. Here's the preposition again. In my side. You wanted persuasive evidence, here's persuasive evidence, my body. The same body that went to the cross, evidenced by the wounds in my hands and my feet and my side. By the way, we just sang a moment ago, or uh, saw a moment ago in our, in our bulletin, crown him with many crowns, that Jesus even now bears the marks of the cross in his glorified body. That, John tells us, is the persuasive evidence for Thomas. The question is, how is that persuasive evidence for us? Again, 2,000 years removed, we haven't been given the privilege, the benefit, the luxury of a a full medical examination of Jesus' resurrected body. So how is it that we could ever be expected to believe in the same way that Thomas believes? It's a good question. I've wrestled with that question myself. And even in this passage, we get some directions and and, and, and clues as to how to take that very honest and good question. First of all, we should understand that what comes to us in the Gospel of John is not just a story or a myth. It's the account of those who were there. This is an eyewitness account. The marks of it are all over this passage, so to speak. And John himself tells us in this passage, there are lots of things that Jesus did. I didn't have room to tell you all about them, but I've told you some things. And in another place in the New Testament, in one of his letters, John says, uh, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have looked upon, what we have touched with our hands, that's what we're talking to you about. We're not just talking to you about a, a story we thought was cool or inspirational. Like, these are things we saw and touched and heard and experienced, and we are passing that on to you as eyewitness accounts. And then you say, well, how can I trust that eyewitness account? That, too, is a very good question. One way we can answer that question from this text is to remind ourselves of the context. The context is that all of this is happening behind locked doors. And why is it happening behind locked doors? Because they're terrified that the enemies of Jesus who nailed him to the cross are coming for them next. Which was a valid concern. In other words, there were still people out there who were highly motivated to prove that Jesus was a fraud and these rumors about resurrection, which had been spreading for about a week now, that those were just a big hoax. And so how is it that the body of Jesus is still persuasive evidence? Well, it goes something like this. Like, if you are determined to stamp out Christianity and to prove the resurrection a host and Jesus a fraud, I mean, we're in D.C., you know what you do. You have a press conference. 
okay? And you hold the press conference in front of Jesus's tomb. And this is gross, but we've already gone there together. So we'll just keep going. And you roll the stone away and you say, everybody, we're just gonna do some, not just press conference, but you get a two for one. You get a private tour of the grave and you can see Jesus's lifeless body is still there where it was seven days ago, game over, Christianity ended. We're not here. We've got other things to do today because it turns out the resurrection is just a big story that someone made up. But that press conference, as far as I know, never happened. That tour never happened. The only tour we know about is that Jesus appeared to his disciples over 40 days and 500 other eyewitnesses. So yes, this evidence of Jesus' body remains a pressing question for us to wrestle with. How do we explain the historical fact that the tomb was empty? Now, um, when we talk about real hope, what we're talking about is anchoring our hope in the answer to those kind of questions, right? Questions about things that really happened, as opposed to anchoring our hope in inspirational stories. Nothing wrong with inspirational stories, Reader's Digest and all of that. Nothing wrong with those. Nothing wrong with the the near-death experience stories that we've all heard, right? So someone uh, is on the operating table and uh, they die, their heart stops beating, and 45 seconds later they come back and they come back like, wait till you hear what just happened to me. And they tell you a story about light and walking toward the light and seeing and hugging uh, deceased relatives and uh, having this powerful spiritual experience. And you go, that's amazing. That's incredible, right? And that can be very comforting and, and very inspirational, but that's not the basis of real hope. You have no way of, of verifying whether that's true, whether that's real, whether that's just their experience, whether that's an experience that's accessible to anybody. Or others of us know what, uh, have heard what I call Uh, cosmic, um, casual cosmic comments. And you hear these, especially after the big game, when you get an interview with the athlete or, you know, uh, during an award show, you know, where people aren't getting slapped, you know, that sort of thing. And the person gets up there and they say something like, I just know that, I just know that, that, uh, that, that he's looking down on me right now and smiling, uh, you know, my uncle or whoever, or uh, I, just, I just felt that she was with, with me that entire game. Like as I was doing the layup, I felt that, that she was with me. Again, nothing wrong with that. That could be deeply personally comforting. If you've had that experience, that's fine. But um, can, do you appreciate like the seismic metaphysical statement that's being made in that throwaway comment? Like we're saying that people who die uh, are now watching us presently and celebrating athletic achievements and, and, and celebrating award ceremony, like they have a consciousness. I mean, there's a whole world of metaphysics behind those throwaway comments. Why do we make them? Because we can't live without hope. So we're going to grab on to something, even something that really should be categorized as inspirational or comforting But it's not real hope. Real hope is anchored in this, a singular event. The only time someone has gone into the grave and returned alive. What we need and 
the only thing that can bear the weight of your hope and stand up under the scrutiny of your questions is this, that Jesus not only went into the grave and returned from the grave, but conquered it, returns with the keys of death and Hades in his hand, as the Bible says, is the firstborn from the dead, and says to all who claim him as Lord and Savior, that victory is yours also. And if that's true, if Jesus really was raised, if everything that's happening here really happened, uh, happened, then the only rational, reasonable response is the one that Thomas gives us. To this persuasive evidence, we have a personal confession. Thomas, doubting Thomas no more, answers him, my Lord and my God. This is the only time, by the way, in the Gospel of John, it's the first and only time in the Gospel of John, anyone directly addresses Jesus as God. But it's also important to notice that Thomas says, you are mine. It's not enough to admire Jesus for pulling this off, like, wow, nice, right? Or uh, accept him as someone who is inspirational and backs that up by doing something kind of amazing. The only viable option is the one Thomas gives us, that if Jesus is truly raised, then we must bow before him in worship and claim him as our Lord and our God. Again, some of you are saying, well, good for Thomas, but what about me? I don't have the benefit of all of the evidence he had, so how do I believe even though I don't see? I'm so glad you're thinking that thought. If you're thinking it because Jesus thought about that a long time ago, he saw that coming a mile away, that's why he says in verse 29 to Thomas, have you believed because you saw me or because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is what's incredible about this story, among other things that in this pivotal moment, Jesus is not only thinking of Thomas, he's thinking of you. That Jesus is already sizing up the challenge of belief in our age. But notice what he's also sizing up. He is sizing up the blessing of believing that he is the Lord of life the one who brings to us the blessing of hope that we can really be forgiven and belong to God as his own and know even today that because of that belief, we have eternal life. Some of you about 20 minutes ago uh, pulled up a painting on your phone. That's okay. That's all right, no worries. I saw it happening. I see everything, y'all. I see everything. (laughs) You thought you got away with it. And then you did Wordle, because you forgot to do that this morning. So that's okay, too. <laughs> We've got cameras everywhere. You'll, you'll, you'll get an email. Terrence will show up at your house. It's fine. And uh, so you looked at that painting, and since you have it open anyway, if you just zoom in a little closer, you'll notice that, it, that the center of the action is not just Thomas's hand reaching for Jesus. If you look a little closer, what you'll notice is that Jesus's hand is holding Thomas's hand. If you look a little closer, you'll see on the back of his hand are the very wounds that we're reading about, the wounds of the nails that went through. And the movement of the painting isn't so much Thomas reaching out by faith. It's this mystery that as we reach out in faith toward Jesus, Jesus takes our hand and moves us closer to himself. 
And I would just respectfully submit to you the very fact that you are here tells me that Jesus has already grabbed hold of you and is drawing you closer to himself, that you might move from skepticism to confident faith, that you might move from the grave and the grimness of death to the hope of eternal life in Christ, that you might move from that place of being distant from God to being close to his very heart as Jesus himself draws you to himself. Let me pray for you. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you have always been good to us this day and every day. And as a mark of that goodness, you have given us this faithful story, this faithful account of our Lord and Savior risen from the dead. We pray, Lord, even now that as we close the Bible, that we would not close this conversation with you, but instead we would continue to wrestle with the great mystery that even as we reach toward you, you, we find that you have been reaching toward us all along, that our hearts might be open to belief, and that in doing so, we might know the real hope that you give real people in any, any and every situation in life, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.